0: Are you part of the 87% of Americans open to new job opportunities? You've probably visited several job search websites with little or no success. Try www.find.jobs. Find.jobs uses artificial intelligence to match your search with over 8 million fresh job openings. With a more accurate search, you will only be presented jobs relevant to your interests, helping you find your dream job quickly. Bring smart search to your job search at www.find.jobs. Visit find.jobs today. Before we get started today, I want to clarify the title of our episode. I don't necessarily believe the concept of brainstorms or brainstorming is a bad thing. The point I'm hoping to make is that the way many of us have been conducting brainstorms is counterproductive to the goal of the activity. It tends to leave good ideas, potentially the best ideas, unexplored. We follow the lead of the biggest voices in the room essentially reducing the cognitive power of the group in support of a single brain. The outcome typically involves cataloging hundreds of ideas, but no clear next steps. We tend to focus on problems and solutions while being blind to the greater opportunities. We can't be so naive to believe that our only opportunities are in fixing what's broken, can we? This is your host, Jonathan Morgan, and you're listening to Design Everywhere, the show that invites you to ask what if and challenges you to understand the why that drives your designs. In this episode, we'll focus on brainstorming. More specifically, its origins, inadequacies, and evolution towards more effective methods of idea generation. We'll have the pleasure of speaking with Drew Boyd, the co-author of the highly influential book on innovation, Inside the Box. His book explores a number of methods that can be used to generate ideas. These methods are a unique and effective way to use constraints to drive creativity. Creativity that has led to some of the biggest innovations in consumer products in the past century.
1: Basically what creativity is, is the sudden collision of two previously unrelated themes. And what the method does is it forces you to create those non-obvious connections that your mind just won't do on its own because of fixing This
0: season of Design Everywhere, we've explored the meaning of design, where it's been and where it's going. We've seen that design is a part of everything we see that nearly everything we experience is the product of design, and a designer. That design isn't reserved for tangible objects. It also applies to far more pervasive products and services. We then explored the topic of focus, and how the lenses of empathy and opportunity provide the necessary constraints to fuel idea generation. That's a good segue into today's topic, brainstorming. Actually, I'm going to put that word to bed and focus on the term idea generation because that's all brainstorming is. It's a single, sometimes flawed, idea generation tactic. What I really want to talk about today are some other, arguably more effective methods of idea generation. Over the course of our program, we're going to dive deeply into the anatomy of idea creation. We'll look at what constitutes a good idea, as well as what makes an idea generation session effective. From strategic use of constraints, to divergent and convergent ideation techniques, to filtering ideas, to create clear next steps. We'll even get into what goes on in a human's brain during an ideation session. We'll also look at some of the deconstruction methods detailed in the book, Inside the Box, through the voice of one of its authors. Maybe just to kick things right off, your take or your definition of what Inside the Box
1: means. Generally, what we're implying is that it doesn't make sense to think outside the box in, in this vast unconstrained space. Putting the mind under a condition of no constraints so really puts it through this condition we call idea anarchy or idea chaos. And so we put constraints, we form this box that is constrained in a couple ways. It's constrained with things like, you know, budget constraints or time constraints or et cetera. But we also, in the book, we describe this principle, what's called the closed world. And the closed world is just a, like an imaginary boundary that also sort of is, forms this box. And all it is is we say, when you innovate, when you ideate, imagine you had just the resources within this, this imaginary boundary of the closed world. When what's, what's true is that when you leverage something immediately accessible to you, sort of like right under your nose, it tends to be more creative. It, t- it creates those ideas where you slap your head and go, gee, why didn't I think that? So that's why we name the book Inside the Box with this sort of dual meaning. But generally, it's, it's a box with constraints that would force you to stay in. Boy, does it work. It really, it really makes people creative when they adopt that kind of thinking.
0: There are many techniques that seem to transcend any particular idea generation technique. For instance, the concept of divergent and convergent thinking. With Divergence, we cast a wide net and explore any and all ideas based on the topic of focus. In Convergence, we narrow down our focus to just the best ideas. Another recurring theme is Deconstruction. We can deconstruct a product, service, or concept to better understand what parts of it need the most attention. And in many instances, bring to light what it is that makes up that product and service. What are all the things that affect the experience? But what is it that makes for an effective idea generation session? What was so wrong with the traditional approach to brainstorming, and what is so great about these new methods? Let's start with a brief history of brainstorming so we can see what got us to where we are today. In 1953, one of the founders of the advertising agency BBDO, Alex F. Osborne, the O in BBDO, wrote a book called Applied Imagination. In it, he describes a method which he called brainstorming. It's actually said that the technique was born more than a decade earlier, when he first referred to the process as to think up. He detailed the technique in 1942 through his aptly titled book, How to Think Up. The origin of the term brainstorm was an evolution of his definition of thinking up. He defined it as, quote, using the brain to storm a creative problem, end quote. Whether it was the intention of Osborne or not, brainstorming took on a life of its own, and it all too often manifests itself as a self-aggrandizing way to get creative, merely for sake of feeling creative. What I mean is that it's pretty easy to come up with a bunch of ideas based on a theme, but it's really difficult to come up with a bunch of good ideas based on that same theme. So there's a real need for structure in idea generation to keep people honest and working towards generating ideas that provide real, tangible value. If there's no structure, our sessions are highly susceptible to the common pitfalls associated with ideation. Pitfalls that lead to not so good ideas making it through and leaving some of the really great ideas unexplored. You know, with, with your ideas of, of constraints and the uh, you know, some of the things that you put together, you've talked about this idea of systematic inventive thinking. The word in that term that really sticks out to me is systematic because when you think, a lot of creative people, when they think of creativity, they don't necessarily think of systems and systematic.
1: True, it, it's, it really does come as a surprise when I stand in front of audiences and I say, I'm going to make you more creative walking out of this room than when you walked in. <laughs> and they look at me and they think, oh, sure, buddy, here we go again, right? We're going to start brainstorming, etc." cetera. But it, it's true. It, it does surprise people when they, they also experience it systematically. When an idea pops out of their head that way, they think, oh my God, it's an epiphany. People have this truly an aha moment when they use a set of patterns that essentially guide their thinking for them and regulate their thinking. That is a unique experience for people and you can see the look on their face, they're like, oh, I get it now, I I get it. And and, and they get excited and I've had people come up to me and say, I've been told all my life I'm not creative by my colleagues and my coworker, even my mother tells me I'm not creative. And now they know with a systematic approach that they can be creative.
0: And what does it even mean when we talk about structure? And why is it so beneficial to idea generation? As I was doing my research for the program, I stumbled on a very interesting journal article. The study aimed at making sense of the factors that make idea generation sessions efficient and productive. Basically, the study aimed to answer the question, what makes a session more likely to generate good ideas? The paper is called Bounded Ideation Theory, a new model for the relationship between idea quantity and idea quality during ideation. I know, it's a mouthful. The authors, Bruce Reinig and Robert Briggs, propose that bounded ideation theory has the potential to increase the percentage of good ideas generated in an ideation session by understanding three distinct boundaries of human capability, the understanding boundary, the cognitive boundary, and the endurance boundary. The understanding boundary relates to the person's understanding of the task at hand and the context surrounding the topic from which they're generating ideas. The cognitive boundary relates to the overarching breadth of knowledge possessed by the individual and their ability to relate this knowledge to their understanding of the topic addressed in the session. The endurance boundary relates to how long an individual can maintain their creativity before they become fatigued. So what they propose is that to optimize an ideation session for success, we need sufficient access to the information necessary for understanding. We need to focus on what and for whom we are generating ideas. We need cognitive resources, more specifically, memory and attention. And we need rested participants, because once the mental and physical endurance of the team fades, so does the number and frequency of good ideas. I want to focus a little more on the second boundary for a minute, because I feel it reaffirms the differences between what I call traditional brainstorming and more effective forms of ideation we'll explore today. The cognitive boundary assumes that long-term memory holds what we understand as the knowledge of the individual. This knowledge, is unique to us and is formed over our lifetime. In ideation sessions, we use stimuli in the form of topics of focus. These topics of focus trigger bits of knowledge to be brought down from our long-term memory so we can actively use them in our short-term memory. This is our way of relating to this information. The problem is we only have so much bandwidth in the short-term memory. We can't pull our full wealth of knowledge down all at once. It's just physiologically impossible. So what we do is take the initial activation we get from the stimuli and we riff off of it in our mind. We basically reframe the stimuli to create new meaning. Then, in turn, create another piece of stimuli. We then riff on that new stimuli to create new meaning, and in turn, another piece of stimuli. This goes on and on throughout an ideation session. We are effectively iterating and pivoting on our last piece of stimuli, ideally creating better and more refined ideas as we go. That's why, as the authors contend, it takes us time to get into the groove. Once we're in the groove, the number of ideas we generate increases, and so does the quality. But alas, there's another boundary of human capability that wants to get in our way, the endurance boundary. The endurance boundary states that the longer we spend ideating, the more fatigued we get. And as we fatigue, the number of ideas we generate and the quality of those ideas plummets. This tells us that we need effective idea generation techniques to get into the groove faster. So in theory, The best ideation sessions happen when we get in the rhythm where we're generating good ideas at a fevered pace before our endurance begins to fade and mental fatigue sets in. If you participate in lots of ideation sessions, this makes a lot of sense, right? For this reason alone, I think our efforts to perfect the process of generating good ideas is well worth it, and structure and constraints might be our best bet at doing that. Do you see resistance at first to the notion, resistance to kind of being able to take that leap into creativity?
1: Yeah, resistance is a major theme in the world of creativity. First of all, resistance and innovation go hand in hand. They really define each other. An idea is not innovative if it doesn't meet at least some resistance. So there's resistance to ideas in general. Do people resist me when I when I start to train them? And oh yeah, they do. I, in fact, I count on it. <laughs> I want them to fall hard, so to speak. And it, it's it's not hard to see the looks on their faces. I was with a group this week out in California and a very senior group of sales executives from a technology company, and they had their arms folded and their legs crossed, and they looked at me with the biggest hunk of skepticism you could imagine. <laughs> it's more skepticism, you know, and, and then there are certain behavior changes that you have to abide by to make the method work right. And I find people, as oh, so much as they are resistant, they they just fall back to old habits, and I have to you know continue to remind them and re, you know train them to adopt these new behaviors if they plan to use the method the correct way.
0: What do you do in those those situations with the kind of crossed arms and you know what, what's your first step to kind of open them up?
1: Yeah, it, it's a clever little trick I learned from my colleagues, at my co-author's firm called SIT and what we do is we put them through some exercises basically it's something like this where we say invent invent a new new piece of uh, exercise equipment with your partner just we break people in pairs and we give them two minutes and then we go around the room and we hear their ideas and they're, they're the usual stuff you know not, nothing too surprising and then we say okay now now invent a piece of exercise equipment that can only be used in a car. And so, and, and then they come up with extremely creative things. And we basically are making the points. What was the difference between the first approach and the other approach? Well, we were constrained. We, you know, we had this constrained environment. And there we go. So people have to experience it.
0: Like almost throw them a little bit off balance.
1: It is. It's exactly right. A little bit off balance. What's also true is I never have to worry about. These exercises working. People are naturally creative; they just need a little the structure that I provide, and the the patterns, you know, the techniques that we're I'm probably going to talk about later. Once they once they experience it, then it, they are surprised pleasantly.
0: So we've seen tangible proof of the power of constraints in idea generation and that in many cases, the rigidity of the box can afford us the freedom to get creative. But can the concept of the closed world live outside the confines of an existing product or service? In our last episode, we discussed creating focus as a way to channel our creativity in ways that will give us the best chance of success. We talked about two distinct types of focus, empathy and opportunity. One of the ideation techniques we've developed and practice at Balance uses these lenses to essentially create a box for us to get creative within. A process takes place usually in a single day. It begins with developing a sense of empathy for the people who might use what we create. As a group, we walk through the personas we develop from our research. We get into the heads and bodies of the people that will benefit from our ideas. We use deconstruction techniques to tear down the personas into its most meaningful parts. We internalize who they are so we can better imagine what they need. We do the same with our target opportunities, the topics of our ideation. We take the time to thoroughly understand the opportunity so that our ideas remain focused on providing the maximum positive impact on our users' experience. We then reframe the opportunities into how might we questions. These reframed questions become the basis for ideation. For instance, when designing a quote generator for a health insurance company, I identified that a primary principle we must follow when communicating to applicants was, don't make me feel stupid. This needed reframing. This statement was negative, and it focused on the minimum acceptable experience. It's really tough to ideate on ways not to make something feel stupid. So we reframed this as, how might we make them feel smart? It's a bit more ambitious and focused. It makes it much easier for us to generate ideas, like having applicants declare a goal at the beginning of their application process, then providing positive reinforcement and affirmations for each decision they make that aligns with that goal. Using the how might we as our focus, we go through the process of divergent ideation through a series of time-boxed, closed and open ideation techniques. We set a timer for five minutes, then ask the group to silently generate ideas by sketching or writing descriptions on post-it notes. This is a form of closed ideation. There's no sharing at this point. We do this to get the unique perspective of that person in turn minimizing the probability that one voice might dominate the conversation. When the five minutes are up, each person shares their ideas with the group as they place their post-it notes on the wall. This is where the convergent filtering part of the process takes place. As different ideas overlap, we place the post-it notes on top of each other. We vote which ideas we collectively believe are good while placing other not-so-good ideas on the back burner. We repeat this process until we have a couple dozen of what we believe are good ideas We'll then look for patterns that we'll reframe as themes. With the time we have, we want to create as much definition around these ideas as possible, so we can define clear next steps. This leads us to the final round of filtering, at least in the ideation session. We evaluate each theme by the degree with which we believe it is something that the customer will want or need, whether it can be done, and whether we feel it will make money. Unfortunately, this is where a lot of traditional brainstorms get into trouble. If they don't use the focus filters like empathy and opportunity at the beginning of the process, or convergent filtering during each round of closed ideation, they're typically left with hundreds of ideas and little to go on to whittle them down. The task is overwhelming, and they tend to filter based on emotion or bias, rather than fact. They become paralyzed by the options. They can't easily decide the best path forward or define next steps. In addition to some of the filtering questions we borrow from inside the box, The technique my team likes to use at the end of a session is what's called a value matrix. With it, we have the collective team place the top ideas on a graph. On the horizontal axis, the far right indicates the highest value to the customer or user. On the vertical axis, the top indicates the highest value to the brand. The ideas and themes are plotted, and those that fall in the furthest upper right-hand corner are, at least in the eyes of the team, the ideas that will likely most benefit both the customer and the brand. These conclusions are informed, but not scientific. It gives us the information we need to either move an idea forward or kill it. We can now prototype the product or service, as well as the business case, to validate if it really is a good idea. The process of idea generation can be a challenge. We have to deal with myriad variables that are inherent anytime we bring together teams of highly and not so highly creative people. It's the job of the facilitator of these sessions to keep the team focused. We need ideas that create value for our customers as well as the brands that pay our salaries. Some sessions just naturally run smoothly, while in others it seems like we're constantly reining in fragile egos and ulterior motives. Success not only depends on how well we structure this kind of ideation, it also depends on how well we create an atmosphere that is fun and conducive to focused creativity. Maybe I'm a little jaded, but when I think of brainstorming, I think of a bunch of people sitting around in a wood-paneled room sipping their fourth glass of expensive whiskey and chain-smoking, riffing off of the ideas of the most senior person in the room, reaffirming that person's white-knuckle grip on the top of their organizational food chain. But it really doesn't matter what I think. Call it what you want, but there are more efficient and effective ways to generate good ideas that turn into great products and services. Embrace the constraints. They can be truly liberating.
1: From the very first experience I had with The Method many years ago, with a group of about 12 engineers and we were innovating a piece of medical equipment that they had already designed. And the thought of innovating now this thing was re- sort of uh, insulting to them. And they, they were just, they were thinking it was a complete waste of time. Within the first 30 minutes, they became energized, very animated, very excited. After having worked on this device for two years and went in 30 minutes producing new ideas for it in fact they produced so many new ideas that day in our very first experience that they threw the old design out <laughs> and uh to create a new one they, they realized that there were just so many more opportunities
0: i thought it was interesting between the the last two stories that you told you know one about the you know more recently with the the company in california and then you mentioned exercise equipment, but was that company an exercise equipment company, or is that something that you used as a technique to get them kind of loosened up?
1: They were definitely not an exercise company. It'd be, actually be fun to do with an exercise company, but it uh, it wasn't in this case. It was a, a technology, uh, long-standing technology company. And what's also true, though, somewhere in the exercise, we have to apply the method to the company's products or services this is a more service- based technology company and they they you know they were curious and first and saying okay I, I, I'm getting this drew but will it work for services <laughs> that's probably the most common question I get and and I uh, of course it does work for services products and services to me are identical there's no real difference between products and services and the method works just as well I uh, think you were referring to is something that happened to me a few years ago with the with GE one of their guys in the audience just was not buying it he just kept shaking his head and he goes he says well this work on GE products it kind of it's kind of snotty actually <laughs> and uh, I, I could see it was coming I, I get those every so often it's it was fine and I knew what had to happen and I just taught the division technique. so I said to the guy so I said sir you know let's let's find out uh, I don't know I don't know if it'll work you pick a product pick any GE product Now, I thought he was going to pick either a light bulb or a a jet engine. And as it turns out, he picked refrigerator. But that caused the the audience to go into an uproar. They were laughing so hard because they thought, oh, it's a flat category, mature category. There's no way this will work. And to shorten up the story here, it it sure did work. We applied the division technique to a refrigerator. We came up with all kinds of amazing ideas. One of them, dividing a refrigerator up into small cooling boxes that you place all over the kitchen. And it convinced them. In fact, it convinced a lot of people. I saw a lady in the back of the room. She was taking notes furiously. And I asked her, I said, what do you do? She says, I work for the refrigerator division. So it's true that people have to see it work on their own in their own domain.
0: So creativity can in fact be structured and scheduled. This seems to go against the idea that to be creative and innovative, we need to think outside the box. We're told that ideation needs people to expand their minds to find ideas and that there are no bad ideas. These types of traditional brainstorms rely on the law of averages. If we increase the number of ideas we generate, we're more likely to find a good one. But remember what we learned from the research in the bounded ideation theory. We want to get the good ideas as quickly as possible, We want both quality and quantity, in that order. And traditional brainstorms aren't designed to do that. In 2013, authors Drew Boyd and Jacob Goldenberg introduced a countermeasure to the movement behind thinking outside the box. Their aptly titled book, Inside the Box, argues that innovation can happen faster when you work within the constraints of the world that is familiar to you, what they call your closed world.
1: Well, I alluded
0: to this idea of the closed world
1: before, and it's a very important principle, it was discovered by a colleague of ours named Dr. Roni Horowitz. And, and Roni was a, a researcher in creativity like Jacob, they studied together. And what Roni did, he, he wanted to study a particular type of innovative product. Was, he wanted to study the types of innovations that had some connection to something immediately around it. And it was Roney that coined this term, the, the closed world. The closed world principle basically says this, it's that the farther away you have to go to, to recruit a component to solve your problem, the less creative it's going to be. The closer you go to recruit something, the more creative it's going to be. In other words, there's an inverse relationship between the proximity of the solution to the problem and its creativeness. And it has a profound effect. And the, the closed world, is, as I mentioned before, it's an artificial boundary, a border around your problem. And you can make it big, small, medium. In other words, it can be manipulated too. Think of it like turning a dial on a, on a microscope a scope or a telescopic lens. Zoom in and zoom out is what we call it. And when you, let's give you an example. Let's say you're innovating uh, the interior of a commercial aircraft like Airbus or Boeing. Well, if you started your closed world there, then your components would be things like the seats, the windows, the aisles, the overhead compartments, flight attendants, food carts, and things like that. But then sometimes what we'll do is we'll zoom down, we'll change the closed world to say something like a seat. Now your component list completely changes. Now it's armrest, headrest, back, rest, uh, well, the window, the tr- tray table, the flap, etc., things like that. And when you create a different component list and apply any one of the same five techniques, you get completely different innovations. You can also zoom up from the, the commercial cabin, and now where are you? Well, you're out on um, at, a, at an airport. You're on the ramp, and now the components are airplanes, jetways, fuel trucks, food trucks, baggage handlers, and so on. And once again. When you apply the method, you'll get completely different ideas. And so in sessions with our our clients, we start somewhere in the closed world, very well defined, and then we manipulate it, zoom down or zoom up, throughout the the workshop to get uh, different effects.
0: At the core of their work is the development of five templates that make up an innovation methodology called systematic inventive thinking.
1: Well, the method is called systematic inventive thinking and it's, it's based on the research by my co-author, Dr. Jacob Goldenberg. And what Jacob did was pretty amazing. He studied highly innovative products initially to find out what made them different from one another. And what he found instead is that highly innovative products have more in common with one another. That They tend to follow a set of patterns. And what we believe to be true is that for literally thousands of years, everyday innovators and inventors have used patterns in their inventions usually without even realizing it and in doing so those patterns are effectively embedded into the products and services you see around you think of the the patterns as the dna of a product or service and jacob's famous paper that was published in the two most prestigious journals in the world nature and science he called it the voice of the product (laughs) this idea that if you could interrogate or question a product that would give up its secrets, This one of them being these patterns. And so surprisingly, just five patterns explain the majority of innovative products. Uh, let me go through them. First is subtraction. Many innovative products have had some core essential element removed, first in a way that seemed absurd to take it away. Next is task unification. Many innovative products have taken a component of the product or service and assigned it an additional job. It has its original job and now it has something that it wasn't designed to do. Multiplication is the next technique. That pattern is when you take a component, you create a copy of that component, but change it in some qualitative way. So a good example of that would be like bifocals, right? That Ben Franklin uh, invented years ago. That's a classic multiplication. Next is the division technique. Division is when you take the product or a component of it, you divide it physically or functionally, and then rearrange it, put it somewhere else back into the system. So for example, a drone. A drone has divided out the pilot, and put the pilot on the ground, and rearranged it to create this this new uh, innovation. And finally is the uh, very powerful, probably explains the majority of innovations, is called attribute dependency. And that's when you take two attributes of the system, one of the product itself and one of its environment, and you create a correlation, a dependency. As one thing changes, another thing changes. So think, for example, of transition sunglasses. As the light outside gets bright, the darkness of the lens increases. Classic attribute dependency. Another good example is a windshield wiper that uh, speeds up or slows down depending on The amount of rain that's falling. Uh, If you look inside an automobile, you will find all five of these patterns. In fact, once you get used to these patterns and you, you have what we call the SIT virus, you're able to spot these patterns everywhere, all the time.
0: These templates were based on patterns that were discovered while researching innovation successes of hundreds of companies. Each template is a unique way to deconstruct a product or service Impose a constraint that would normally not exist, visualize a solution, evaluate its value, and decide if it's something that you can actually make. The last two, evaluating and deciding, seem like daunting tasks that will take an extended period of time and require a panel of expertise. But in fact, they can be addressed with only a few simple questions. You need to ask yourself, what are the potential benefits, markets, and values of the idea? Who would want the new product or service and why would it be valuable? If you decide that it is something of value, you then ask yourself, is it feasible? Can you actually make it? And finally, would you change anything to make it easier to produce or implement? Pretty simple, right? Now let's walk through one of the five templates, subtraction. Subtraction is often a good starting point because it's the simplest to understand but the hardest to overcome. Requires you to deconstruct the product or service and list out its internal components or things that you can touch. Now the hard part, select an essential component and imagine removing it or subtracting it. Now visualize or describe in your own words what you have. Seems impossible, right? If you remove an essential component, it won't be itself anymore.
1: Subtraction definitely assault the sense and sensibilities. And what I do is I apply subtraction to a simple television set. And I make a list of all the components of a TV. And the first one on the list is, is the screen. And so I look at somebody in the audience and I have them, I say, pick one randomly. Uh, Pick, you know, an essential component. And two things happen. One is somebody picks screen because, and they start laughing. Everybody starts laughing and they say, oh, this this isn't going to work. Or they resist picking screen. They pick something like the remote or something like that. And I ask them, why didn't you pick the screen? And they say, well, you can't take the screen out of a TV. And of course, they're suffering that, uh, condition we call fixedness.
0: The urge to jump ship at this point is natural and touches on one of the key principles in systematic event of thinking called cognitive fixedness.
1: Yeah, and the, you know, when we say fixedness, it, it sounds like this uh, dreaded disease. No, it's not really, it's, it's just a condition. And it's actually an, a good condition to have because fixedness is essentially how we organize our world. Right, it'd be pretty tough if you were in a car and you see this thing hanging up in the air that is red a red light and you had to stop and think like what's that for again it, you know we we need, we have to know uh how our world was organized so we say things like television has a screen that's why they in fact that's why they call it television a lot of our fixedness comes from the language that we give things so it has a good side but when you want to be creative it, it is clearly the most important barrier not the only but the most important and that's why the SOT method is designed, really to break that fixedness.
0: So this mental block, cognitive fixedness, can manifest itself in two ways, functional fixedness and structural fixedness. Functional fixedness describes our need to associate specific functions to objects. This creates a mental block in which we cannot envision something being used any other way than it was initially intended. Structural fixedness, on the other hand, is the tendency for us to only see the object as a whole, which makes it difficult for us to imagine how the components that make it up could be arranged or reorganized to look or act differently. An example of this is illustrated in the book through the story of Vitco detergents. I'll paraphrase. Vitco hired a group to come in and run a workshop for them. The goal was to expand their product offerings beyond what they currently had, and they chose laundry detergents as their initial focus. Employing the subtraction technique, they first listed out the physical components of the product. Detergent, perfume or scent, and binders that make up the rest of the liquid. They were then asked to remove an essential component. They chose the detergent since it's the most essential component of the product. They were then asked to visualize the new concept. Basically, they needed to answer the question, what is a detergent that doesn't clean clothes? To visualize this, they started asking themselves the what, who, and how questions. What are the benefits? Who will benefit? And how can we make it? They came to the realization that by removing the component responsible for breaking down fabric, they created a product that was now gentle on clothes, allowing them to last longer. This would be perfect for people who wash their clothes because they've been worn even though they're not even dirty. What they can now create is a product for those looking to freshen up their wardrobe without wearing it out. Through a series of unfortunate events for Vitco, they were never given the chance to develop the clothes refresher product. But four years later, one of their biggest competitors, Procter and Gamble, did. They called it Febreze. So what Vitco was able to do in an afternoon of idea generation, through the subtraction template of systematic inventive thinking, P&G uncovered through extensive research and potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars of investment over several years. Will techniques like these lead to success at scale? Short answer is no. But it is a solid structured ideation tool that can help us quickly expose good ideas. Ideas that are buried under the surface, but at the same time, right under our nose. So, the concepts and methodologies presented in Inside the Box can be extremely useful in uncovering opportunities that leverage the products, services, and capabilities you already possess. The outcome can take the form of groundbreaking innovation or incremental tweaks to an existing product line. But for the most part, The ideas and the product concepts that result still need to be vetted. Remember, not all ideas are good ideas. Next week on Design Everywhere, we'll explore the topic of prototyping. We'll focus on how we use prototypes for more than just a method to interact with our designs. We'll see how forward-thinking researchers and designers are using prototypes to evaluate the impact of their designs on society as a whole. Not just the people using the things we create, but also how these things are perceived by those people around them. We'll also speak with Wendy June, Associate Professor of Information Science at Cornell University and former Executive Director of Interaction Design Research at Stanford University on her groundbreaking work in the world of autonomous vehicle design. This is your host, Jonathan Morgan, and you've been listening to Design Everywhere, the show that invites you to ask, what if? and challenges you to understand the why that drives your designs. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review, it really helps. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you listen. A special thank you to our executive producers, Joan Andrews and Michael DeAloya, our producer, Bridget Coyne, our audio engineer, Eric Coltnow, our music director, David Allen Moss, My collaborators, Mike Trace and Renee Bolland, and our guest, Drew Boyd, co-author of Inside the Box, available anywhere you buy books. For more information on the books, papers, and other references, please check out the liner notes for this program. Design Everywhere is a production of The Front Porch People. To learn more about this and their other podcasts, please visit thefrontporchpeople.com. Thanks for joining us. Until next week, keep your eyes and ears open your next big idea might be right in front of you.
1: Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds.
0: We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy,
1: happy reading.
0: reading! This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.